Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. This is the word of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're so grateful to come together and worship you, worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to your word this morning, we want to have an accurate view of what it can do. And it can pierce us to the very core of who we are. It can change the way we think. It can change the way we live by the power of your Holy Spirit. It can take a dead person spiritually and make them alive. And these things are exactly what we pray for this morning. I pray that you'd get me out of the way that you would be able to speak directly to each of us here this morning what we need to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory alone. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Ever since that devastating event recorded in Genesis chapter 3, when the first humans sinned against their creator God, choosing to go their own way of death instead of his way of life. Ever since that decision, there have been devastating consequences for their descendants. And from that moment to now, the central question of all humanity has been this. How can we sinners be brought back into right relationship with our holy creator, who is our God and our judge and giver of all life. Because of our moral failure, we stand guilty before him. We stand condemned. How can this guilty verdict be reversed? How can we, to use the Bible's word, be justified before God? How can we be restored in this life-giving relationship to God? How can we, to use another Bible word, be reconciled to God, or to ask it differently, tying all these themes together, how can we be saved? And throughout the history of the world, at least in places where this question is understood, there have basically been two different and opposite answers to that question. Either we contribute in some way to our own salvation, or God saves us and we contribute nothing. We see this contrast illustrated in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. One of them, the Pharisee, depends in part on his own contributions. He recognizes God's grace, but he also includes his own contributions for his right standing with God. Thank you that I'm not like other men. I do this and that. The other, the tax collector, understands his absolute helplessness before God with nothing to offer, depending fully on the mercy of God 
to save him. Jesus says that man, not the other, went home justified. We see this contrast throughout church history as well. During the Great Reformation 500 years ago, Martin Luther and others recaptured this truth because it had all been been lost in the church. We're saved or justified not by our own efforts or contributions, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther called this doctrine the article upon which the church stands or falls, because there couldn't be a more important truth for the church than this. Because if we're wrong about how to be saved, if we're wrong about how to be justified before God, if we're wrong about how to be in right relationship with God, then any other doctrine doesn't really matter, does it? Because if you're wrong about that, then you're still in your sins and you're not in right relationship with God. You're not justified, but still condemned. Having only God's wrath and judgment and eternal separation to look forward to. So, one of the mottos of the Reformation was the Latin phrase sola fide, faith alone. And we will consider in our passage today what that means, what it doesn't mean, and why it's so important for us this morning. Because there's just as much confusion today as in any day in the history of God's people about how we are saved. Jim Boyce is probably right when he says that after John 3.16 and Psalm 23, this passage is probably the most memorized text of the Bible. The great Australian scholar Peter O'Brien says these three verses have often been called the heart of Paul's gospel because it captures and summarizes the essence of some of the great thoughts he develops in Romans and Galatians. So before we start going through our passage about how we are saved, we must first ask the question, from what are we saved? Why do we even need to be saved? So let's go back up a, a, a few verses earlier to verse 3, where we will see that we need to be, number one in your outline, saved from God's wrath. Let's start reading in verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The default disposition of humanity is against God. We're not born into a positive state, and we're not even born into a neutral state. Our fallen state In our fallen state, we choose by nature to follow our own sinful desires and not live according to God's will or for his glory. That's the default. As we saw last week with Ben, we were spiritually dead. There was no spiritual life in us. Dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God, under his wrath and eternal judgment. If you don't understand this, my friend, None of the verses we'll look at today will have, make any sense to you. None of these truths will have any beauty whatsoever. If you think you're on a cruise ship in calm water and someone throws you a life jacket, 
you're probably going to roll your eyes. I don't need a life jacket. I'm not in any danger. When our actual state, according to God's word, is that we're drowning in the water during a storm with no help in sight, and this is the only way to be saved. Tom Schreiner says this truth is where the battle is today. Most people don't think they need to be saved. It might be difficult for some of you young people to understand this, but in generations past, believe it or not, there was much more common understanding that there's a problem, a fundamental problem with humanity. Today, with the celebration of the modern individual self, generally people do not perceive there to be any problem with human nature whatsoever. You be you. So this gospel of how to be saved doesn't scratch an itch today. People think, I'm not a sinner like that. I don't deserve hell. God isn't concerned about my little issues, my little sins. I'm not that bad. I, I am who I think I am, and it's good. I certainly don't deserve condemnation. This is a, a real challenge Today, Because Romans 3 and following is clear that no one by nature understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. All fallen hearts are wicked, filled with malice, deceit, and murder. No one fears God. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And the wages of that sin, the rightful payment for our rebellion against him, is death, judgment, his righteous holy wrath upon us. So in our fallen state, we are children of wrath. We need to be saved from God, and we can only be saved by God, namely by his grace, number two. Let's look at our passage now, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Paul has already said this in verse 5, and now he expands on it. Grace is something that is given unmerited, undeserved. We focused on this in our Lord's Supper this morning. When you work at your job, for instance, there's a certain kind of contract by which you're paid for your work. Your labor merits a payment, something deserved. Your employer is obligated to pay you for your work. That's not how we're saved. God is not obligated to save anyone. There's no earning salvation. His holy standard, in fact, is impossible to achieve in our fallen state. And that is a very unpopular truth because it chafes against our can-do spirit. Hughes tells a story, you might have heard it before, but illustrates this common view of Salvation, as it's understood by our culture today, by our own effort. A frog fell into a large milk can. Couldn't get out, no matter how hard it tried. Nothing it could do but keep paddling, which it did until it churned a pad of butter. And presto, it saved itself by leaping from the launching pad it had made. I think this, this does illustrate this American can-do religion. Just keep trying. God helps those who help themselves. God knows I'm not perfect. I'm doing my best. As Hughes said, that may be okay for Kermit the Frog, but it's not the language of salvation. In fact, it is the very heresy the church has been battling from the very beginning. 
A better illustration of our actual state might be jumping across the Grand Canyon. Let's say a a hundred-year-old woman tried to jump across the Grand Canyon. That would be tough to watch, wouldn't it? As she hobbles over to the edge of the rim. What about me? I mean, I could do better than her. Maybe 10 to 15 feet better, right? What about an Olympic long jumper? He could really outjump both of us. But I hope you can visualize that extra distance is negligible. The difference in the distances between the 100-year-old woman, myself, and the Olympian would warrant no consideration. None of us are even close. That's what it's like when we try to earn our salvation or look to our own contributions. Against God's holy standard, the difference between a moral pillar in the community, a volunteer at a soup kitchen, and Adolf Hitler are negligible. If there were a bridge across the canyon, all three of us would have to take it. And that bridge is Jesus and his accomplishment on the cross. And the fact that the bridge is Jesus is important. Because when Paul says we're saved by grace, he means we're saved by God's grace in Christ. A few years ago, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, One of the guests that day was a well-known pastor who was being interviewed about his new book on grace. The pastor spent about eight minutes talking about grace, but never actually defined what it is and never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. As Carl Truman says, those lacking a theological background would have come away with the impression that grace is simply a divine sentiment, a tendency in God to overlook sin, like an overindulgent parent might do when dealing with a a naughty child. It's okay, I'm giving you grace. Grace seemed to be nothing more than God turning a blind eye to human rebellion. It was as if grace were a free pass to do whatever one chooses. That's not the grace Paul's talking about. To talk about biblical grace is to talk about Christ and his work on the cross. We must remember the violence of the cross as the backdrop for this grace. Truman again. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. Biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. So we don't need life coaching or a pep talk to do better. We don't have what it takes. We're dead. We need a resurrection. And that comes from outside ourselves by God's grace in Christ. Number three, saved through faith. Let's continue in verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Though the basis for our salvation is God's grace alone in Christ alone, that doesn't benefit you if you don't receive it through faith. Just because it's true that Christ died and rose again, doesn't mean you're saved. You must exercise faith to be saved. Well, what is is faith? Unfortunately, like God's grace is misunderstood today, faith is also misunderstood. First of all, faith must have an object. Just having faith doesn't mean anything. It's sort of like the dilemma of the atheist on Thanksgiving. You can't truly be thankful when there's no object to thank. To say, I thank 
is meaningless. You thank whom? It's the same with faith. To say I have faith is meaningless without an object for your faith. Now, there's not a one-to-one synonym in the English for the biblical concept that's translated faith. But one word that comes close is the word trust. Again, it doesn't really mean anything to say I trust Again, it must have an object. You trust whom? You trust what? Another facet of faith is the concept of allegiance. Again, you need an object for allegiance. You can only pledge allegiance to someone or something. Paul is talking about faith in Jesus Christ. He's the object of saving faith. He's the object of our trust and our allegiance. In the scriptures, we see distinctions and kinds of faith. In the New Testament... Speaks of false faith, faith in vain, dead faith. So we must understand the nature of this saving faith that Paul speaks of. To have genuine faith in Christ, there are three necessary elements. I've found this helpful. These aren't, this isn't original to me. The reformers talked about this as well. Knowledge, belief, and will. First, knowledge. You have to know something about Christ. You need, a, you need knowledge about who Jesus is, who we claim to be as the fully human without sin. Also, God in the flesh, what he did on the cross, how he rose from the dead. You have to know things about Jesus. But faith is more than knowing. It's also, secondly, believing these things are true, agreeing with them. But we can't stop there. Not just believing intellectually, because the, even the demons believe, James says. Demons have perfect theological understanding about Christ, and they believe it. They agree with it. In the Gospels, some of the most accurate statements about who Jesus is are spoken by demons. When many people are confused, they get it right. So it's not just believing in your mind, but in your heart. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know who he is, you believe who he is, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it means the center of your desires, the the sort of command station for how you think and live based on your desires. So at the very center of who you are and from where your actions and thoughts flow, you believe these truths about Jesus, truths about yourself, your sin, your need for repentance, and that he is Lord, and he was in fact victorious over sin and death and his resurrection. James, again, says about the demons, they believe, but they shudder. About what they know to be true, they shudder because their knowledge repels against their desires and their will. So this third element of genuine faith involves the will. Faith means you think and act completely differently as a result of what you believe in your heart. This is where trust and allegiance are evident. Another way to say it is that faith must comprise the head, the heart, and the hands. It must change what you do and how you live or it's not real faith. Think of faith in a chair. I could know the features about the chair... I could even believe that the chair could support me. But it's not until I lean on the chair or sit in the chair that genuine faith in the chair is demonstrated. There's a great illustration of this distinction in the story of Jean-Francois Gravelet. 
He was a famous, famous acrobat in the uh, early 1900s. He performed many amazing feats, including walking across a 1,000-foot tightrope over Niagara Falls, 160 feet above water. One time, he carried a man across on his back. At a different time, he asked another man in the audience, do you think I could carry a man across? Yeah, of course, he answered. I've seen you do it. Well, do you think I could do that with you? Yeah, I'm certain you could. Well, hop on then. Not on your life, said the man. (laughs) He believed, but he didn't trust. And who can blame him because he was being asked to put his faith, his life, in the hands of a fallible man? We are asked to put our faith in the infallible Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So, faith is something we do, but it's not a work. Okay, it, calling faith a work confuses what the apostle is saying. In Romans 4, we see it was Abraham's faith that gave him right standing with God. Abraham exercised faith. And saying it that way is not crediting Abraham with a work or merit. Okay? We must put our faith in Christ. That's how we receive the grace God has shown us in Christ. We don't have righteous standing with God on our own, as we've talked about. In our sinful state, we can't get there, no matter what we do. Faith is the instrument of receiving. It's the the means by which Christ's right standing with God is reckoned to us. We can only be reconciled to God by being united with Christ through faith. Now, we'll talk about this later, but... Just because it's not our own right standing, but rather Christ's right standing that's been credited to us, doesn't mean we are left unchanged. In fact, if you're not changed, you haven't really exercised faith. Being united with Christ profoundly changes us, as we'll see later. But faith alone just means the basis for our right standing with God is Christ alone. Is saved through faith alone by, means saved by Christ alone. Number four, we're saved as a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Some people, people have argued he's talking about faith here. Faith is not your own doing. Faith is the gift of God. But the grammar and context in the original don't really allow for that reading. So it's not faith that's the gift. But instead, this whole package of the first part of verse 8, this salvation package is not your own doing. Salvation is the gift of God. These two phrases are reiterating this concept of God's grace alone in slightly different ways. First, the first way, salvation is not your own doing, or in some, some translations, not of yourselves. It doesn't originate in us. Okay, the source of salvation is in God, not in us. This is so important for many reasons, but one key one pastorally is assurance of our salvation. If it started with us, it would depend on us, and we could lose it. We would have no assurance, but it didn't start in us. It originated in God and therefore depends on God, not us. Second, not only does this salvation not originate in us, it also does not result from something we do as if we earned it. 
It's not a result of works, he says. Not some effort on our part. It's not something we contributed to or facilitated. Instead, salvation is a gift of God. If you earned it, you might have something to boast about. Hey, I did this, and as a result, God did that. But that's not how salvation happens. You cannot boast in a gift. And this is a gift, a gift of God that you receive by faith. Now, I want to spend a minute on this concept of the gift. Uh, It's another word that can be misunderstood today. We've seen previous words, grace and faith, and the danger of using those words in unbiblical ways. Well, the same is true with this word gift. We have certain ideas and images of what a gift is in our culture and context. And some of those ideas match back perfectly to how Paul uses the word gift in his culture. But some of those ideas do not. When we think of a gift, we think free. We think something without cost, something not earned but given, given irrespective of the worthiness of the recipient. And all that is consistent with what Paul means in his context. However, we can also think of a gift as someone giving us a ticket for something free of charge. We take it and use it. Or some anonymous person leaving a package on our doorstep. We open up, benefit from it. It's a gift. We get the full benefits of that gift. I just need to receive it. No necessary obligation or relationship at all with the person who gave me the gift. That idea is not in Paul's usage. And unfortunately, that misunderstanding has led to a perversion of the gospel and what's been called the free grace or easy believism. I receive my forgiveness or my ticket to heaven as a gift. Nothing else really matters. That idea is completely foreign to what Paul means by gift. And frankly, it's foreign to the entire New Testament. For Paul, you cannot separate the gift from the giver. There's no receiving the gift outside a necessary new covenant relationship with the giver. In fact, to receive the gift is to receive the giver in terms of his lordship in your life. Let me illustrate this with an Old Testament concept. The Israelites in the Exodus. You could say they were saved from Egypt as a gift from God. They didn't do anything to earn that salvation out of Egypt. It was given to them irrespective of their worth. But they couldn't say, hey, thanks, we received the exodus as a gift, now leave us alone. No. They were saved and they owed their lives to the Savior. Out of their salvation, they entered a covenant relationship with the God who saved them. It was a salvation package in this gift. The new covenant... You're purchased with the blood of Christ, meaning he owns you. He's your Lord, your master. Now you do his will. It's a package deal. So we cannot think of this gift as somehow separate from our obligations to the giver. Here's another reason it's important to understand this distinction about some of the way we use the gift, word gift and, and how Paul uses it. If we don't understand this, we'll be really confused when we read the Gospels. We will wrongly see a divide between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Paul. Man, Jesus seems so demanding. (laughs) Count the cost. My eternal life 
given to you means you leave everything and follow me. Well, Paul seems a lot easier. Just open the gift and you're good, right? No. It's the same gospel presented in different ways. You cannot separate the gift from the giver who purchased your soul with his blood. He's not only your savior, but also your new master, and he is Lord. Just because we didn't do anything to earn this gift does not mean we're not obligated to the giver. In fact, we owe him everything, don't we? If you don't understand that and have not given yourself fully to him, then you haven't truly received the gift at all. Number five, we are saved into new creation. Let's look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Another translation says we are his creative work. This alludes to the, it's a massive theme in the New Testament, the new creation. Okay, Christ Jesus in his first coming, especially through his resurrection, ushered in the new creation. This is a, a phrase, or, I'm sorry, a phase of history promised in the Old Testament. Jesus' new glorified body is, is the first fruit of new creation, which ultimately will come to the entire universe. Creation, in fact, groans for this renovation. We read in Romans 8, when everything will be made new. And believers have been given a first fruit of the new creation as well. When we're born again by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, we are a new creation. And we groan as well. We eagerly wait for our new bodies in the new heaven and earth. But while we wait for that consummation of the new creation, it has been inaugurated. We have been born again. Something new has already happened to us, believers. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, meaning they've trusted, they're united with Christ by faith, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If we've been truly saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, if we've been born again, we've been newly created, we have new priorities, new likes and dislikes. Also, all previous natural distinctions and divisions between people are done away with. He says in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creation. That's what counts. You're a Jew, you're a Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. Are you born again? That's what counts. This has profound implications for our unity with each other and united in Christ, as we'll see next week. But have you been united to Christ first by faith and made new? That's the difference. Donald Gray Barnhouse illustrates this with the following story. In the 1900s, in the worst slum district of London, there was a social worker whose name was Henry Morehouse. One evening, as he was walking along the street, he saw a little girl come out of the basement store carrying a pitcher of milk. She was taking it home. But when she was a few yards from Morehouse, she suddenly slipped and fell. Her hands relaxed from the grip of the pitcher and it fell on the sidewalk and broke. Milk ran into the gutter and the little girl began to cry as if her heart would break. Morehouse quickly stepped up to see if she was hurt 
He helped her to her feet, saying, Don't cry, little girl. But there was no stopping her tears. She kept repeating, My mommy will whip me. She'll whip me. Morehouse said, No, little girl. Your mother will not whip you. I'll see to that. Look, the pitcher isn't broken in many pieces. He stooped down beside her and picked up the pieces, began to work as if he were putting the pitcher back together. The girl stopped crying. She had hope. She came from a family in which pitchers had been mended before. Maybe this stranger could repair the damage. She watched as Morehouse fitted several of the pieces together until working too roughly, he knocked it apart again. Once more, she began to cry. And Morehouse had to repeat, Don't cry, little girl, I promise you that your mother won't whip you. Once more, they began the task of restoration, this time getting it all together except for the handle. Morehouse gave it to the little girl, and she tried to attach it, but naturally, all she did was knock it down again. This time, there was no stopping her tears. She would not even look at the broken pieces lying in the sidewalk. Finally, Morehouse picked up the little girl in his arms, carried her down the street, to a shop and bought her a new pitcher. Then, still carrying her, he went back to where the girl had bought the milk and had the new pitcher filled. He asked where she lived, and when he was told, carried her to the house, set her down on the step, placed the full pitcher of milk in her hands, opened the door for her, and as she stepped in, he asked one more question. Now do you think your mother will whip you? He was rewarded for his trouble by a bright smile as she said to him, oh, no, sir, because it's a lot better picture than we had before. <laughs> you see, we cannot change our broken nature. We cannot carry the milk, no matter how hard we try and put it together. We need a new picture. This is what God has done to us in Christ. He's carried us through death to life, given us a new vessel, filled us with his spirit, he has newly created us in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful truth. And there are at least a couple of similarities with this, of this new creation with the original in Genesis chapter 1 of heaven and earth. In that first creation, God did all the work, didn't he? Without any help from humans. Likewise, in this new creation, it's done without any human aid or intervention. Secondly, after the original creation, Adam and Eve were given what? A commission to work, to be fruitful. Likewise, after we have experienced the new creation, we are to work and be fruitful. And that brings us to our last point this morning. We are saved for good works. Verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the new creation, God is crafting us into something beautiful and for a beautiful purpose. And that purpose involves good works that he designed specifically for you. He has uniquely crafted you with gifts and talents to do things for his glory. And amazingly, he planned these good works beforehand. You're not an afterthought. It's not like God says, well, looks like this person is now saved. i got to figure out something for her to do. No. From the beginning of time, he has planned unique activities, good works designed specifically for your newly created self. 
When he chose you in eternity past, he also chose your works to do. Isn't that amazing? Listen to Joni Erickson. Every artist strives to create what can be called their masterpiece, their best work by which others will know them. In Christ Jesus, you are called God's masterpiece. Not a mistake, not an accident. God takes you as you are, broken, disabled, or just a plain mess, and he refines and chisels away until the person he created you to be, his masterpiece, is revealed. But unlike a gilded statue or painting hung only for admiration, God fashions us to be useful in his kingdom and to accomplish the work he planned for us from the beginning of time. If you are in Christ, brother, sister, you are the work of a master craftsman who fashioned you into a beautiful work of art, not to sit there and be admired, but for a new purpose, to serve his church, to work and bear fruit for his kingdom and for his glory. Roberts illustrates this with the classic story, Les Miserables. If you know the story, the released convict, Jean Valjean, is shown kindness and hospitality by a bishop, but then he steals the bishop's silver and runs away. Caught by the police, he's then returned to the bishop's house, fully expecting more decades in prison. Instead, to his utter shock and amazement, the bishop confirms to the police. This silver was a gift. When the police depart, the bishop explains to Valjean what just happened. He had redeemed his soul from his evil life, and he charges Valjean that he no longer belongs to evil, but to good. I'm buying your soul from dark thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. In the musical version, Valjean leaves his old life and sings, I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And the rest of the drama is really this new story. His redeemed life has a new purpose. And his life and works are evident of that new purpose. Great illustration of new creation, created four good works. The old is gone, the new has come. Our life and works are evident of that. So these good works that we're saved for, important, really important here, because it, it guards against two false doctrines regarding salvation. First, as we've seen throughout the passage today, we contribute nothing to the basis of our salvation which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. But secondly, and equally important, genuine faith produces good works. It must do so, or it's not real faith. The Puritan John Owen said it this way, we're justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. The good works that God prepared for us must follow for there to be evidence of this new creation. Evidence that our faith was real. The reformers used a a brilliant illustration of lightning and thunder. If you see genuine lightning in the sky, it will always, without exception, be followed by thunder. If you do not hear thunder, then you can be certain that despite how amazing the display might have been, it was not, in fact, lightning 
that you saw, but something else. Sometimes people can have a dramatic profession of faith, but then that faith turns out to be not real. We see this in the parable of the seeds. We, we painfully see it experiences with people in our own lives. But in the parable of the seeds, a plant might shoot up very fast, impressively, but if there's no fruit, it was just an illusion of faith, not real faith. So to summarize these two truths in a math equation, it's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's not that. It's also not just faith equals salvation, but rather it is faith equals salvation plus works. And again, these good works are not possible without the new creation, but they are necessary. Not possible without the new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes about the fruit or evidence of the Spirit in Galatians 5, doesn't he? This is what new creation life looks like. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the old that's passed away. These are the works of the flesh. They're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the same Apostle Paul who wrote our passage today. We're saved through faith alone. He says if your life is unchanged, still characterized by these sinful lifestyles, you're not saved. You will not inherit the kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit, the kind of life that comes out of new creation, resulting in true, genuine faith, is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Tom Schreiner says it this way. Salvation is by faith and due to the grace of God. And those who experience God's grace live a new life. For those who are not transformed will not receive an eternal reward. We see the same thing in James, don't we? Faith without works is dead. So-called faith that doesn't result in a changed life of good works is not real faith at all. Paul says we walk in these good works that were prepared beforehand by God. Walk. Back up in, in, in verse 1, he says when we were spiritually dead, okay, before new creation, before united with Christ, we used to walk in trespasses and sins. Now we walk in the good works God prepared for us to do. We need to walk in them. Okay, we're not robots. As one commentator says, the Spirit of God who produces all good works and attitudes does not take control over man in such fashion that men are manipulated like puppets on strings, but he activates man and makes him a responsive partner of God's covenant. Walking in step with the Spirit and what his word says for us to do takes effort on our part, but not effort to earn salvation. Again, effort to do what God has prepared for us to do because we have been saved. Dallas Willard says it this way, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. 
So let's consider the riches of what we have seen today. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved by God's grace as a gift, not something from us or done by us. We're saved through faith in Christ and our union with him. We're saved into new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're saved for a completely different life and purpose resulting in good works, all planned by God from the very beginning that we should walk in them. This is a humbling gospel. No one can be proud at the foot of the cross. Now, this message chafes again at the very core of human nature, which is inherently prideful. At its core, human nature is fundamentally opposed to any suggestion that we're somehow helpless before God. But we are. And if you are here this morning, if you're listening to this right now, thinking that you have some contribution to your own salvation, please understand that is a lie. And it is a lie that has taken many forms throughout the history of religion. There's only one religion, the only true religion, that says you can't do anything. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has graciously done it all in him. Will you receive this gift by faith? Will you trust in him? Will you give your allegiance to Jesus? I'll close with a story from Kent Hughes of a man who had been convicted of burglary by the court. Later, this burglar had come to put his faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior, And one day, the ruling judge of the court who had convicted the man was kneeling in his own church during the Lord's Supper. And the burglar came in and kneeled right beside him. And after the service, one of the pastors came up to the judge and said, isn't that amazing? You were kneeling right next to that man. The judge says, it is amazing. The pastor said, to think that burglar who had been convicted in your very court, and here he is right next to you, at the Lord's table. It's incredible. And the judge replied, oh no, oh no. What's amazing is that I was there. What's amazing is that I was there kneeling next to him. What's incredible is that with my background, my privilege, and my position as a judge, that I would come to understand the truth of my desperate need For Jesus Christ. That's amazing grace. You see, a morally cleaned up person without Christ is farther from salvation than an immoral person who understands his immorality. Let's not be like the Pharisee in Luke 18, thanking God we're not like other people. Let's cry out with the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Cry out, my friend, with faith alone to receive this grace, this gift, this Savior. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for this wonderful gospel. We're grateful that you have done it all in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that for each of us here, whether we struggle with not understanding that grace or perhaps struggle with taking that grace for granted and not fulfilling the obligations to you as our Savior and Lord, convict us and change us, Father. I pray for those here listening who do not have saving faith 
in Jesus. I pray that they would be born again. I pray that they would turn from their sin, turn from all their self-reliance, from any hint of pride, that they could do anything to please you on their own. And accept this free grace, this free gift, this free salvation in the beloved Lord Jesus. We're so grateful this morning in his name. Amen.